Okay, so last night I gave an overview of where the teachings on the Noble Eightfold Path come from and their relationship to the Four Noble Truths. And I highlighted that the Noble Eightfold Path is in some ways the prescription that the Buddha gave us to metaphorically cure us of dukkha, of to help us release the craving and the clinging and the rejecting and the identifying with our experience that causes so much suffering. And this prescription helps us release that clinging and craving so that we can live with greater ease, happiness, peace and freedom. And this right view, the first of the noble, first factor of the Noble Eightfold Path is this understanding of the purpose of what we're doing with this practice. And the path that the Buddha laid out here is a very comprehensive one that includes all aspects of our lives. And so traditionally the eight factors are grouped into a set of three broad areas of our lives. Uh, known as ethical conduct, meditation, and wisdom, or sila, samadhi, and panya, to give them their Pali names. So sila, or ethical conduct, includes the factors of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And I think of this grouping more broadly as being the relational aspects of the path, because they're really about how we show up in the world, how we engage what we say and what we do, and also how we earn our living, our work lives. The samadhi or meditative factors, on the other hand, are more explicitly about our meditation practice. So this group includes the factors of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And these are qualities of mind that we can develop very strongly in formal meditation practice, as we have already been doing in these last couple of days. And then the last group, the wisdom group, comprises right view and right thought. And you may have noticed that although wisdom is the goal of the practice, right view and right thought are actually the first two in the numerical sequence of the eight factors. And what some commentators say this contradiction points to is that there's a circularity to the path. So as I said the other day, it's not that we work through right view, tick it off, move on to right thought, tick that off, move on to right speech, that all of the factors reinforce and circle around each other. And we need some degree of wisdom even to get started. Some some perhaps vague and unformed, but some inkling that there might be a better way to live our lives. Because without that, none of us would even be here for this retreat. We'd be just going on with our ordinary lives. Fine. But if we have some sense that there's a different way of living our lives, that in itself is a little spark of right view that gets us started on this path. And then as we continue to walk it, the wisdom becomes ever deeper in the way that I described last night with this idea of the wisdom progressing from the head to the heart to becoming fully embodied. So with these three arenas of wisdom and ethical conduct and meditation, 
there's also a circular relationship. So we start with some um, right view of that we need to minimize harm and cultivate the skillful. And this understanding sharpens our ethical conduct so that we naturally want to clean up our speech and our actions of body, speech, and mind. And when we're not engaged in as much harmful behavior, the mind is easier to settle. It's easier to find ease and stillness to concentrate. And from that stability of mind, it's easier to access insight, transformative wisdom. It doesn't stop there, though, because that transformative wisdom feeds back into our understanding of our ethical conduct and our ethical conduct becomes even more refined. So probably most of you can think of things that perhaps in daily life you used to do, I don't know, 10 years ago, five years ago, two years ago, and you had a vague sense that maybe they weren't quite that skillful, but it's like, oh, well, never mind, you know, everyone else is doing it. But fast forward a couple of years and you realize that really isn't so helpful. So there's a refining of ethical conduct which makes it easier again for the mind to stabilize, which allows for more refined insight, which feeds back into the ethical understanding. So there really is a constant spiraling rather than a straight line, a spiral that goes around and around these three arenas and leads in the in an upward direction. So I wanted to uh, highlight that because I think most of us um, who've come to this path from a Western background, we have some sense that our meditation is going to help our lives. So we may be in the beginning have a sense of it's going to help reduce my stress or help manage my anxiety or perhaps improve my communication skills, those kind of things. So we have a, a pretty clear sense that the meditation will affect our lives. But what we don't have as clear a view of is that our lives affect our meditation, that it really is a two-way relationship. And yet most of us seem to have this unconscious attitude that when I meditate, it happens in a vacuum and I just sit down and somehow whatever I've been doing in the rest of my life will just conveniently stay out of the way. But I think probably all of us here on retreat have had that very direct experience that what we do out there very much affects what we experience in here. So this understanding of the interrelationship between ethical conduct and meditation is also an aspect of right view. And in relation to right view, I just want to emphasize again the point that I made briefly the other day, that this word right uh, can in English sound quite authoritarian. So right view, you'd better have right view or else. And it, um, so the Gil Fronstel's translation of right as appropriate might sound a little more appropriate here. So appropriate view. And he goes on to say that right view is not meant to be the only perspective with which to view our lives. Other perspectives can be necessary for other purposes. 
However, in order to walk the Buddha's path to freedom, right view is an essential ingredient. It is a perspective needed to find the path and to stay on the path. Practicing right view does not require believing something that we can't know for ourselves. It does not rely on any supernatural or mystical beliefs, nor does it require us to be ahead of where we actually are. Pursuing a path involves walking where we are on the path. We can't walk on what lies ahead until we reach it. So appropriate view in its fullest expression, as I said the other night, really encompasses the whole of the Buddha's teachings. But to make it more manageable to begin with, we can start with the view that all of these teachings are offered in the service of freeing ourselves from suffering. That's really their overarching purpose. And some of you may know the American scholar monk Bhikkhu Bodhi, who he's written an excellent series of essays on this Noble Eightfold Path. And in it, he describes the huge emphasis that Buddha placed on right view. He says, the Buddha himself says that he sees no single factor so responsible for the arising of unwholesome states of mind as wrong view, and no factor so helpful for the arising of wholesome states of mind as right view. Again, he says that there is no single factor so responsible for the suffering of living beings as wrong view, and no factor so potent in promoting the good of living beings as right view. So there's a connection between wrong view, unwholesome states of mind and suffering, and the opposite also, that there's a connection between right view, skillful states of mind and well-being. So as we begin to explore this factor of right view, we can start with just two fundamental aspects of it. One is the understanding that actions have consequences, that wrong view leads to unwholesome states of mind which leads to suffering, and right view leads to skillful states of mind which leads to well-being. And the second aspect of right view is the understanding of the Four Noble Truths, which includes the Noble Eightfold Path that we're focusing on here as a path out of that suffering. So we can take these two aspects of right view as a starting point, but as we've already been discovering, in some ways it doesn't really matter where we start because the Buddha's teachings are like fractal geometry and wherever you start, they very quickly open out to include the the whole of them, the vastness of them. So Gil Franzel says the Eightfold Path begins with right view because this is the view that puts us on the path to liberation. If we want to find the path, right view teaches us that it makes sense to take responsibility for our actions and that if we want to be free of suffering, we can view our actions and experiences through the perspective of the Four Noble Truths. So the first aspect of right view then is really taking responsibility for our actions, for understanding that what we think and say and do has an effect on ourselves and on others. As I said earlier, nothing happens in a vacuum. 
Now, sometimes people hear this need for responsibility as a burden because I think there's a very common tendency for us to think only in terms of things that we've done wrong or ways that we haven't measured up. But it's important to keep in mind that this works both ways in relation to unskillful and skillful actions. So if we look at the positive side of the scale, we can see that all of us are already doing a lot that's right. Or we wouldn't even be sitting here tonight, for example. So on one level, right view is very simple. It's the basic understanding of the law of cause and effect, that actions have consequences. It's also the understanding that these actions arise from an intention in the mind. So I often quote the opening lines of the Dhammapada. Many many of you are familiar with them, where the Buddha is reported to have said, all experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. So right view then leads quite naturally to the second path factor, which is right thought or right intention. And again, just to say that this uh, English phrase, right thought, can sound oppressive, even Orwellian, if you remember 1984, the thought police are coming to get you. You, know, you better have right thought, otherwise you're in trouble. So just to emphasize again that this is not about any, making anyone think in this way, um, taking on beliefs. What's actually referred to here is the understanding that our thoughts have beneficial and unbeneficial effects. So the Buddha in the suttas describes how before he attained full nibbana, full freedom, he was uh, meditating and going through a, a process of paying very close attention to his thoughts and he saw very clearly that certain types of thoughts lead to suffering for himself and others while other types of thoughts lead to ease to happiness and to freedom so I'd like to read you the actual words from the Sutta it says practitioners before my enlightenment while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva it occurred to me Suppose that I divide my thoughts into two classes. Then I set on one side thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty. And I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of non-ill will, and thoughts of non-cruelty. As I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, a thought of sensual desire arose in me. I understood thus, 
this thought of sensual desire has arisen in me. This leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbana. When I considered this leads to my own affliction, the thought subsided in me. When I considered this leads to others' affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to the affliction of both, it subsided in me. When I considered this obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbana, it subsided in me. And then he goes through exactly the same phrasing in relation to ill will and to cruelty. So I find this a very powerful statement, one that we can really take to heart in our own practice. Because if we pay close attention to our thoughts, it does become clear that thoughts of sense desire, greed for sense pleasures are harmful not only to ourselves, but to whatever unfortunate people get in the way of us trying to get what we want. And with ill will or aversion, it's usually pretty easy to see and feel the suffering of that because aversion itself is pretty unpleasant. And we've probably all had the experience of acting from aversive mind states and really regretting the consequences. And likewise, cruelty it's pretty obvious that hurting others usually ends up hurting ourselves too. And yet somehow, even though we know this, even though we know this intellectually, maybe on a deeper level, still so often we find ourselves caught in habitual reactions. And it can be quite shocking that we tell ourselves, well, I'm not going to do that again. And then some period of time later, there we go. And there's this, at least for myself, self at times, a sense of disbelief. Like, how did that happen? But in the same text that I just quoted later on, the Buddha went on to describe how this happens. He says, practitioners, whatever a practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of sensual desire, one has abandoned the thought of renunciation to cultivate the thought of sensual desire. And then one's mind inclines to thoughts of sensual desire. And then he goes on through the same sequence again for ill will and for cruelty. So what the Buddha is pointing to here is what uh, more recent neuroscience has just started to find with that uh, because of neural plasticity that repeatedly thinking in certain ways actually sculpts our brains, it shapes our minds. Hence that aphorism that neurons that fire together wire together. So as we were exploring with the Vedana exercise this morning, that very fundamental building block of this whole process. I tried to give a sense of just how significant it is because as we were discovering with pleasant, unpleasant and neutral feeling tone, there's an almost automatic reaction. Unless the mindfulness is strong, we end up strengthening these pathways in the mind. 
And I remember reading a few years ago that um, they had done autopsies of people who suffered from obsessive compulsive disorder and they could see physical ridges and grooves in the brain from these very repetitive thought patterns. And perhaps we're not quite to that extreme, but I think all of us can feel at times these grooves that we seem to just keep finding ourselves thinking, thinking down these grooves. So coming back to the sutta, the Buddha asks us to deliberately cultivate, to cultivate three types of thought that directly oppose uh, sensual desire, ill will, and cruelty. So this is what is how he defines right thought or right intention as the intention of renunciation, the intention of goodwill, and the intention of non-harming. And these three are what the Buddha means by right thought or right intention. And again, in English, there can be some challenges with this translation of right thought as right intention because the English word intention can sound a, a bit wishy-washy or a little bit weak. You know, sometimes people say, well, I didn't intend to hurt you. And it's a bit of a fudging or, or a cop-out. Or we have the English saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So again, this sense that intention alone is not enough. So sometimes I've seen right, this aspect translated as right resolve. And for me, that idea of right resolve really captures more of the power that we need to really strengthen our intention here. So we need to cultivate the resolve towards renunciation or non-greed, the resolve towards goodwill or non-ill will, and the resolve towards compassion or non-cruelty. So these are the three aspects of right thought or right resolve. And don't worry, I'm not going to go into all three of them in detail tonight. I'd like to talk about the other two, kindness and compassion, uh, later on in the retreat. So tonight I just want to focus on the first of these three right resolves, which is renunciation or nekama in the Pali word. So just wondering when you heard that I'm going to focus on renunciation, how many people thought, great, my favorite topic? Anybody? I'm thinking about renunciation. You like thinking about it, but... No, 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 no. I'm, I'm thinking of what I'm going to do now. So okay. Sorry, I am sort of excited. Okay, good. You like thinking about it, but does that imply you don't like doing it so much? No? Okay, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm happy that somebody is happy that we're going to explore renunciation. Just trying to make the point that in English, again, renunciation for most people doesn't have very appealing connotations. Because uh, some of the online dictionary definitions are relinquishing, abandoning, repudiating, sacrificing, giving up, abandoning, resignation, abdication, surrender, foregoing, abstention, going without, doing without, giving up, eschewing, and rejection of. So none of those words to me sound very appealing. 
And yet, whenever the renunciation of talk is talked about in the Buddha's teachings, it's almost always phrased as the bliss of renunciation. So we have to do quite a bit of work to try and work out, well, how on earth can bliss and renunciation go together? And the definition of the Pali word nekama, according to Gill, is that it actually refers to going forth. So for monastics, leaving the household life and moving into the monastic tradition. And Gill makes the point that this word usually emphasizes more what we gain by going forth than what we leave behind. And although none of us here are monastics, I think it's worth highlighting that last point, that the original meaning of nekama emphasizes what is gained more than what is lost. So in some ways we can think of this, we can see this in the way Joseph Goldstein translates uh, renunciation as non-addiction. Non-addiction, which has that quality of ease and freedom and relief from some kind of craving. So how do we actually engage with a renunciation as a practice? Well, usually we start with material things because they're most tangible and obvious. And almost immediately we come into exploring our relationship to stuff because most of us have a conscious or unconscious belief that we really need to have this or that or the other in order to be happy. And because in the West, most of us are able to get this, that and the other, that assumption generally doesn't get challenged. And also that assumption is reinforced by advertising in the media, trying to sell us this, that and the other, trying to say that our happiness depends on having, on getting, on attaining, being, becoming and so on. And that's the only way to be happy. But I'm pretty confident that all of you being on retreat here were already practicing some degree of renunciation and I hope that you've managed to taste some of the ease that comes from that. So things like voluntarily handing in your phones, perhaps there's some sense of simplicity and lack of agitation that this out of sight, out of mind. And in a similar way, uh, I had quite a powerful experience of this early on in my own practice I've shared with some of you uh, that my first 10-day insight retreat was in Thailand. Uh, and it was at a retreat center that was owned by a nun by the name of Mechi Arman. And she had set up this retreat center with two Western meditation teachers because she wanted to make uh, Vipassana meditation more available to the backpackers that she saw coming to this island, which really was a very generous motivation of her. So this retreat center was next to a small monastery and it was fairly basic by Western standards. So the accommodation was in small uh, wooden huts that were just big enough for two people to lie down next to each other with their backpacks at the end. And there was no furniture. There were just nails on the wall to hang your clothes and to string your mosquito net. So even getting dressed, my roommate and I had to do this kind of acrobatic dance to uh, work around each other to, to get dressed. 
There were no showers, there was no hot water, there were no flush toilets. And we slept on woven bamboo mats with a pillow that was about an inch thick and a bamboo, uh, sorry, an acrylic blanket. And that was it. And for the first few hours, I was wondering if there was a secret stash of Innersprung mattresses somewhere. And I was kind of following the teachers, wondering maybe they had a bathroom with a flush toilet that I could sneak into at some point. But after a couple of hours of being there, it became totally obvious that we were really being offered everything that was available. And it was so freely offered that it felt kind of mean-spirited to be looking for um, other options. And because there really weren't other options, and this is the bliss of renunciation, the mind just let go. There wasn't an option, so it's like, okay, this is it. Just deal with it. And to my amazement, two or three days into the retreat, I experienced this wave of bliss, of, of a kind of a pure happiness that was unlike anything I'd ever experienced in my life up until that point. And yet if you'd told me, go and live in a semi-jungle and sleep on the floor and eat two basic meals a day and don't have a shower and so on, I would have thought that would be a recipe for misery. But actually the opposite was true in my experience. And then a few months later, I had an interesting experience in the opposite direction. When I was in England, I saw a retreat center in a different tradition was offering a seven-day retreat. And it was all women, and I thought, great, this will be an experience to re to have another experience of that bliss. And so I signed up for the retreat, and when I got there, every bed had an inner sprung mattress and two fat pillows and an electric blanket. And there were hot showers, and there was an art room filled with art supplies, and there was a library with bean bags and all the latest magazines. And there was a coffee pot brewing coffee all through the day. And the food was excellent. And there were beautiful gardens to wander in. And the climate was cool, but not too cool. And we weren't in silence. And we were supposed to be meditating three times a day. But after a couple of sessions, I was about the only person in the hall. And after about four sessions, even I wasn't in the hall. So just too many other interesting things to do. And it wasn't in silence, so we could talk with each other. And before long, I realized that a lot of the conversation was just about how they didn't have the kind of tea bags that this person preferred and that the shower pressure, the water pressure in the showers wasn't quite strong enough. And they thought that maybe the coffee was brewing for too long and it was getting that metallic taste. And they were wondering why we didn't have desserts after every meal and on and on and on. And... I found myself joining in, even though I'd had this experience not that long before of the bliss of renunciation. In this setting where there were options, the mind was never satisfied. It was always looking for things to be just a bit better, just a bit more pleasant, enhance them, prolong them. And there was this illusion of being able to control our environment so it was a powerful lesson for me that uh, physical comfort and so-called contentment don't necessarily lead to mental contentment and the opposite. 
And on one level, it's natural to want to be comfortable. It's not like we all should be sleeping on beds of nails or doing the kind of ascetic practices that I described the Buddha doing the other night. But we need to pay attention to how much comfort is supportive if we really want to deepen our practice. So there's an essay on this topic by the American monk Tanisaro Bhikkhu, which I've really appreciated. Even the title, he calls it Trading Candy for Gold, Renunciation as a Skill. And in this essay, he describes our tendency to go for the easy option, the quick fix, the instant gratification, rather than what will benefit us more deeply and for the longer term. So he says, there's something in all of us that would rather not give things up. We'd prefer to keep the candy and get the gold. But maturity teaches us that we can't have everything, that to indulge in our one pleasure often involves denying ourselves another, perhaps better one. Thus we need to establish clear priorities for investing our limited time and energies where they'll give us the most lasting returns. That means giving top priority to the mind. Material things and social relationships are unstable and easily affected by forces beyond our control. So the happiness they offer is fleeting and undependable. But the well-being of a well-trained mind can survive even aging, illness and death. To train the mind, though, requires time and energy. This is one reason why the pursuit of true happiness demands that we sacrifice some of our external pleasures. So as Tanisaro Bhikkhu says, it's completely normal not to want to give things up. But if we're serious about getting the deeper benefits of this practice, we really do need to, quote, give top priority to the mind. And speaking of the mind, as we develop this renunciation as part of right thought or right resolve, it's just as important, perhaps even more important, than looking at what we need to give up externally, to look at what we need to give up internally, to notice the clinging in the mind to certain views, opinions, beliefs, our personality habits, our conditioned reactions and responses, to really look at those and to see, well, are they even accurate? and whether they're helpful, and if they're not, being willing to let them go. And ultimately, it's this practice of mental renunciation that leads to complete freedom of heart and mind, because we start to recognize the conditioned sense of self and that clinging to it that is the source of pretty much all of our suffering. So when we practice renunciation on this level, we pay attention to the, all the ways that we're constructing a sense of identity, a sense of self, a sense of being something solid in the world. And we try to see through this solidification to the truth that who we think we are is actually constantly changing due to causes and conditions and that there is no enduring me behind this process. And so in this way, renunciation leads to insight to really seeing the truth of how things are.
So this practice of renunciation covers a whole spectrum from sort of ordinary, everyday giving up of material things right through to the highest liberation. And because it's a spectrum and because we start where we are, we can gradually begin to make the changes that move us in the direction of greater freedom. And it's good to practice to strengthen the muscle of renunciation now while we have some choice about it. Because for all of us, there come times in our lives when we don't have a choice anymore, when we're forced to give things up. And at these times, we've probably all experienced the extra dukkha that comes from that stress of holding on and clinging and being attached to things, being a certain way, even as we face the truth that they're not. And we've probably also experienced times when we were able to let go, when we were able to surrender to the situation and to open to the truth of how things are and how different that feels. So renunciation is a muscle that needs to be used in order to get stronger and to start working it now so that it will be available for us when we really need it. So, for example, Tanasaru Bhikkhu mentioned aging, illness, and death. And with aging and illness come big changes, often unwelcome ones. Whether we like it or not, whether we're ready or not, at some point aging challenges us to let go of our physical health, perhaps also our mental health, if you think in terms of dementia and so on. We're probably going to lose our fitness, our sexual attractiveness, our status in society, our role at work, our identity as a mother or a father or a wife or a husband or a partner. We might lose our financial security and as we age, perhaps our social circle starts to get smaller because our friends too are aging and dying. But if we've been exercising the muscle of relinquishment, of renunciation, it will be less of a struggle to accept these changes. And ultimately, when death comes, we'll have more chance of dying with some degree of ease and acceptance. So in some ways, practicing renunciation now feels like an investment in the future, a kind of a strange form of superannuation or, or life insurance. So while we still have reasonable health and resources, we're putting strategies in place that can help us when we no longer have those resources. And it's not only about practicing for the future, because each moment of letting go now is a moment of freedom. So it's a win-win situation. So last night I was asking us to um, begin to tune into what Ajahn Buddhadasa called the temporary nirvana, those moments of ease and release and peace and letting go. And the more we can do that, the easier it is to let go of our habit of clinging and craving. So I'd like to finish with just a quote again from the Thai forest meditation master Ajahn Chah. You've probably heard this before, but I think it's worth repeating because it's 
such a simple instruction, but it's so powerful and almost like a mantra that we can practice with. He says, do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will know complete peace and freedom. So may we all strengthen the muscle of renunciation and begin to taste that peace and freedom. Thank you for your attention.